welcome to a wild mystery podcast appears where we discuss mysteries histories and occasionally conspiracies i'm your host ollie and i'm your host co-host bell today's trigger warnings are disappearances plane crashes mentions of the jfk assassination and political conspiracy theories Today, we are discussing the disappearance of a plane carrying two U.S. congressmen in Alaska in 1972. So, Representative Thomas Hale Boggs was first elected to Congress in 1941 at 26 years old. Which is so young. Extremely young, yeah. In 1942, he was defeated for re-election and decided to join the Navy, where he served in the Potomac River Naval Command for four years during World War II. In 1946, he was re-elected and served 13 consecutive terms afterwards. That's way too long. I know. He became Democratic Party whip in 1962 and majority leader in 1971. He was very popular from what I could gather. He supported civil rights even when it was controversial to do so. And he supported Alaska, getting close to Representative Begich. He was married with two daughters and a son, served on the Warren Commission after the death of JFK, and in October of 1972, he was 58 and had been representing representing the New Orleans area in Congress for 28 years. Representative Nick Begich, Sr. of Alaska, was a mm-hmm. former Alaska state senator, school principal, and businessman. He was also a Democrat and had been was elected to Alaska State Senate in 1962 and then the U.S. House of Representatives in 1970 as the sole representative for Alaska. So we should probably mention at one of these points that we are in Alaska. So some of this stuff we are going to understand, like the context when, yeah, it may be tougher. So we'll. Tr- I'm gonna. I'm. Tr- I've tried. We're gonna do our best to make sure that it understood from an outside yeah. perspective from the most part i have actually seen this story told from the louisiana perspective from you know the bogs yeah. side so i actually think it is kind of cool that we're telling it from yeah. side. hopefully something new for any for any yeah. of our listeners so because i i don't even know too much about this yeah i hadn't i hadn't heard of it until my parents or my mom suggested it uh during this time when he was elected to the House of Representatives, he paved the way for getting land set aside for the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, which then butterfly affected into the permanent fund dividend. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, the here's the thing. I feel like most people un, like have a vague understanding yeah. of what the permanent fund dividend that is we in get Alaska. Paid for being a citizen, citizen of, of Alaska. That's not exactly... Of it's not correct. We get a certain amount based on the amount um that of oil that is produced within the state of alaska mm-hmm. and we get a stipend basically of that money yep um and it changes per year yep sometimes pretty dramatically <laughs> the past couple of years have it better not be been... fucking massive this year <laughs> yeah come on current governor anyway. i mean we live in alaska you can google it his name is governor dunleavy yeah. He's been promising He's to fix the... Some of it's not bad. Dunleavy, I don't feel so good. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, Nick Begich was married with six kids and in October... Oh. I know. In October of 1972, he was 40 and running for re-election to the house for the first time. The only thing I can say is his poor wife... <laughs> 
Yikes. Yeah, they were all pretty young at the time, too, the kids. Um, anyway. <laughs> so Boggs arrived in Alaska on the 15th of October, 1972. Begich was campaigning for re-election, and Boggs was helping him out. They had a super busy schedule planned for the next few weeks, going around to give speeches and all that. Uh, for instance, the same day that Boggs arrived... They went to two separate fundraisers in Anchorage where Boggs was described as jet-lagged but jovial. <laughs> By all accounts, both representatives were actually really good public speakers, very good at kind of, like, connecting with people. And it seemed to me like they were enjoying their time, even though they seemed pretty tired at the time they turned in. Or by the time they turned in. They were planning on getting up fairly early the next morning for a flight to Juneau, the capital of Alaska, for a rally on the same day. Which, if anyone doesn't know where Juneau is, um, Anchorage is in uh, central southeast Alaska, and Juneau is in, like, southeast southeast Alaska. Yep. So, basically, if you look at Alaska on a map, it's the farthest right-hand, bo- or bottom right-hand corner. Mm-hmm. And that's where and Juneau I will, is. And I will be posting pictures, but some of them are kind of, like, turned in weird directions, so it's, yeah, it's based on like the size of you know. It's, yeah, it's like how Alaska actually is placed on a map, as opposed to being straight up and down. Yeah, I assume. No, actually, I don't need to see pictures of Alaska. I, yeah, I live here. I grew up here. I know. I some know what's of, up. Yeah, but some of these pictures, they're like they're looking from Anchorage to Juneau, basically. Oh, so they're, so they're kind like of flipped upside down, basically. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, it's very weird. Like, oh, you see this one? Oh, what the fuck? Yeah, so it's weird to try and get your bearings, but I will be posting pictures. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Just know it's inverted. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll post a regular picture, too, just so that uh, people get a, a good general sense. understanding. Yeah. So. But that was our flight path, I assume? Yes. And we'll get more into that later. It just, the flight path is complicated if you don't have, you know, an image of reference. A reference, you. Yeah. I ran into that with the flight. On the night of the 15th, a pilot named Don Johns got a call asking him to fly Begich and Boggs from Anchorage to Juneau the next morning. Johns was 38 at the time and owned a charter company called Panalaska Airways, which was based out of Fairbanks, which is about 227 miles as the crow flies from Anchorage. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just love the phrase as the crow flies, and I'm curious to know how many people out there actually use that earth as, I like, know. <laughs> you know, because I, I feel like that's definitely, like, Alaska has a lot of Midwest influences, and I think they're oh, yeah. very similar. Not Midwest influences. We are similar <laughs> in our phrases and mannerisms. We use some of the same. Alaska is yeah. a melting pot more than people realize. So, uh, Don Johns had 17,000 flight hours and by many accounts was an accomplished pilot with experience flying in icing conditions johns called his mechanic pretty much immediately after getting the initial call and by the time he got to pan alaska the orange and white two engine cessna 310c with tail number n1812h the plane he was planning on taking on the trip um it was ready He did a quick walk around and pre-flight check while chatting with his mechanic and then took off at about 5.58 heading to Anchorage where he arrived at 7.40 p.m. He spent the night with his girlfriend who was in Anchorage um, who said he spent the night calling 
multiple times to check the weather. At this time, it that was like pretty much all you could do as a pilot to figure out what the weather was like along your planned route. Today, you can check weather cameras and look at, you know, the forecast on your phone. Mm-hmm. Which is really cool and really yeah. helpful. Um, but obviously, none of this stuff was really in place in 1972. At about 6.56 a.m. on the 16th, Johns called the Anchorage Flight Service Station once again and spoke to Robert Mahoney, asking again for the current weather along his planned route. He stated his intention to fly using visual flight rules or VFR, which is just to say he wasn't planning on using autopilot and was going to rely primarily on actual visibility. When you're flying VFR, there are some pretty strict rules for visibility, as I'm sure you can imagine, (laughs) and the weather conditions... They have to be pretty good. During this call, Johns was told it was foggy in both Yakutat and Juneau, with visibility at one to one and a half miles in Yakutat and half a mile in Juneau. Which, when you're flying, is fucking small. Yeah. For those of you who aren't aware, that's bad. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I didn't even read that. I was just like, dude, that's fucked. Yeah. On a clear day, um... We at this house can see Denali from our home. Fuck, I can see it from Anchorage on a good day. Yeah, and um, at this home, That's... we are currently 170 miles away. Yeah. So from the ground on a clear day, we can see Denali. Yeah. Which is 170 miles away. It's so funny. We do say Denali differently. I say Denali and you say Denali. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> anyway. Generally... <laughs> Reporting stations report visibility as unlimited over 10 to 20 miles, so that's, like, usually pretty good visibility. Also, sorry, real quick note, for those who don't know, Mount McKinley equals Denali. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Realize some people not might be- That's a good point, yeah. Might not be aware of the- (laughs) Didn't occur to me. Yeah. I did not. I was, like, looking at it going, wait a second. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway- uh, Johns was also told that Portage Pla- Portage Pass, Portage Pass, which he was planning to fly through, was forecasted to be closed, and the forecast also called for icing in clouds and moderate to severe turbulence. Which in a Cessna is not fun. Been no. there, done that, hate it. <laughs> so, and I only have also, like mild. Turbulence. I should I should mention my dad flies a single engine Cessna. He owns one, so I had a little bit more like context that i could ask for in this so if you have any question let me know because i've asked my dad so many questions about this so that i could get a full understanding of what was going on have you flown with your dad yeah not in a while but yeah he pretended to let me fly once when i was a kid (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) he didn't faa but (laughs) yeah but i fell for it because i was like 10 (laughs) yeah um Whereas on the alternative side, I totally drove drove a bus significantly younger than I should have. Yeah. Mind you, not operating the pedals, but I was physically steering. Yeah, actually... That's basically what my dad did. I couldn't reach the pedals at the time. So yeah. I couldn't actually mess with the um, runners. Yeah, which is like the main yeah. part of, you know, flying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Moving on. Alaska's built different. Let's yeah. just leave it at that. So... On the morning of the 16th, Johns Boggs Begich and a Begich aide named Russell Brown showed up for the flight. Brown was 37 at the time. He was actually pretty excited to be on the flight because another Begich aide had uh, given up their seat on the flight to let him go instead. 
sadly, I actually couldn't really find much on Russell. I don't think that he had many, much family. He wasn't married, didn't have kids or any siblings. He was born in Nebraska and first moved to Alaska to work as a chemist for Alaska Fish and Wildlife in Ketchikan after graduating from college in 1954. When he moved into politics, he got to know Nick Begich pretty well. Um, it is also worth mentioning that both Peggy Begich and Lindy Boggs, Nick and Hale's wives, both considered coming along for the trip, but decided they had too much going on in D.C. and it would be better if they stayed. Which, in Peggy's case, <laughs> with six of those kiddos. Yeah, that's a... Yeah, all of the Boggs kids were adults at this time. Ah, so. Gotcha. The skies were gray when they departed out of the Ted Stevens Anchorage International Airport runway 24R, which for the, like, one of you that might care, is now runway 25R. <laughs> so... I care. Yeah. I've never been on that side of that I don't airport, think... but that's fine. I have, like, once, but I've never taken off out of it. Yeah. But anyway. um, It is always fun when you get to actually go on the tarmac, though. Yeah. Like, when I flew to Bethel... Um, we deplaned and boarded the plane from the tarmac because, you know, it's Bethel. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think I might have been there once when I went to Quithluck. Anyway. To Quithluck! Yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> Any outside listeners? Um, and when I say outside, I mean not from Alaska. I yeah. don't mean that offensively. <laughs> I'm just not from here. Um. I want you to attempt to Google Queefluck. Yeah, try to spell it. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. Anyway. Um, they departed at 8.59 a.m., starting the 575-mile flight. At 9.09, 10 minutes after liftoff, Johns radioed the FAA flight service station to file his flight plan and again spoke to Robert Mahoney, the same person he had spoken to at 6.56 that morning for a weather update. Sounds about right. Yep. His plan, which, by the way, um, if you're wondering, it's not, if you're flying VFR, it is not abnormal for people to call and file their flight plans after they take off. If you're flying instrument flight rules, IFR, you usually put in your flight plan before you take off. But for him, it wasn't, it wasn't weird necessarily, because I thought it was weird at first, but then I asked my parents and they were like, nah. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. So... His plan was to fly along airway V317 south to Yakutat, and then from Yakutat fly to Juneau. Now, I know that's a lot, <laughs> even for those of us who live in Alaska. So I posted a picture on our Instagram so everyone can look at it. So V317 follows the terrain along Turnigan Arm and Cook Inlet, mm -hmm. right in Cook Inlet. Kind of through Portage Pass, which is in here. Past Whittier. Past Whittier onto Yakutat. And then his plan after hitting Yakutat was just to fly directly to Juneau. Mm -hmm. So again, I'll post that for those of you who, like me, can't fucking visualize what the fuck that means. <laughs> well, especially if, you know, if you're not from Alaska and you're, yeah. China, you're like, first of all, what the hell is a Yakutat? Yeah. What is... It sounds like yak, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. And the, yeah. Because I think that's the most, it's like, oh, yeah, turning around and cooking, like, da, 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 da. Yeah. what are these? For those, for us, that's like, oh, yeah. It's like, oh, for, yeah, I know what you're For about. anybody who hasn't, like, spent a lot of time in Alaska, that might be like, what the fuck are these? <laughs> what the fuck are they saying? Right. Anyway. <laughs> I'm 
bless you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just remember that um, this map that I'm posting, it's kind of twisted upside down because you're looking from Anchorage to Juno. So you're looking south. So yes. basically, okay, let's put it this way. If you were looking at a map and it was Seattle to Oregon, you would be looking at... So instead of Seattle being on top and Oregon being at the bottom, you're looking at... Oregon at the top. Oregon at the top and Seattle at the bottom. Yeah. So just to put it into perspective for you guys, that's kind of what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So on the radio call, Mahoney asked Johns if he had survival gear and an emergency locator transmitter or ELT aboard, um, which is a piece of equipment that transmits a signal on a frequency or on a certain frequency that searchers can use to kind of hone in on the transmitter's location in an emergency. Uh, GPS didn't exist at the time. The Department of Defense started looking into it in 1973 the next year. So Johns replied affirmative to these specialist questions and estimates their flight time at three hours and 30 minutes at a cruising speed of 170 knots. He tells Mahoney they have roughly six hours of fuel, which is, you know, roughly double. That's pretty good. Um, Mahoney tells him that Portage Pass is closed or was forecast to be closed, although I don't know what he meant because it was pretty early or it was late in the morning so i would think they would have made that decision mm. um anyway meaning he wasn't supposed to be flying through it but there wasn't much that robert <laughs> could have done to stop them from doing so mm -hmm. visibility was forecast to get better along the route throughout the day and winds in juno were mainly calm but they were forecast between six to eight knots in anchorage and yakutat between nine and eleven a.m so the Cessna, neither of those, by the way, include the not the um, wind speed in Portage Pass, which we'll touch on that in a second. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Cessna was last seen by air traffic control about two miles south of south of the airport, heading southeast at about two thousand feet ele elevation in the air. <laughs> The yeah, plane? it's yeah. elevation. Okay. Right? Yeah, uh, well, because I'm... I don't know. I've well, heard it's that like 30,000 feet. Yeah. I don't know. Moving on. <laughs> Semantics. When, <laughs> when the plane doesn't show up when it is supposed to, the airport in Juneau started calling around, asking other pilots in the area, airports, and checkpoints to ask if anybody had heard from the flight. At 1.15 p.m., which was 45 minutes after their scheduled arrival, the U.S. Air Force Rescue Coordination Center receives word that they're overdue. At some point around this time, an Air Force Lockheed C-130, which was already in the air, receives instructions to start looking for the plane, but came up empty. Those are fun to fly in, by the way, C-130s. I've never done... Well, not that I'm aware of. Probably Rossi, not. bitch! Yeah. <laughs> I've been in that and a C-17. And a C <laughs> and a Blackhawk. Which is cool as fuck. I've been on an aircraft carrier, but that's pretty as close as I've been. <laughs> Not um like a a functional one, I guess. Like it was floating, but it wasn't. Aircraft carriers, are yeah. Fucking cool. Those things are massive. Oh, we have. We a were in there, there during a thunderstorm once, and my mom goes, "Don't touch anything metal," and I was like. The whole plane <laughs> and the whole ship is metal. What the fuck do you mean? Don't touch don't anything don't metal. What the fuck? <laughs> she was like, "Oh." <laughs> anyway, I love your mom. I know. 
At 3 o'clock, the plane theoretically should have run out of fuel, and they still hadn't arrived. Lindy Boggs was dozing off in Bethesda, Maryland, when a phone call startles her awake. Her little dog started barking, jumping up on the table to get between her and the phone. When she does manage to pick it up, the speaker of the house, Carl Albert, is on the line, wanting to inform her of the disappearance before she hears on the 10 o'clock news. She said later it was like her dog knew. It was trying to protect her from it. The Begich family was all together when they also get the call. Ten-year-old Mark picks up the phone, but Peggy takes it from him and is informed by Alaska Governor Bill Eaton that her husband is missing. The search following this disappearance was the largest search and rescue operation at that point in U.S. history. The weather didn't permit a lot of air searches on the 16th, but on the 17th, 100 planes and 40 military, or sorry, 100 private planes and 40 military aircraft took off to search along the coast. Roughly 450 fishing vessels based out of Cordova um, also joined the search along Prince William Sound. Air Force C-130s searched along the planned route using electronic detection gear. Um, I would bet trying to find and hone in on ELT transmissions. So my dad actually uh, showed me his yesterday because we drop by his plane for other shit. And, oh yeah, cool. Yep. And what they do is they transmit this beep on a certain fre frequency, which you can use to follow to a downed aircraft. Um, he was explaining to me, like, it's kind of tough to do that, but possible for, like, civilian aircraft planes without special equipment, as long as you know which direction your um, antenna is pointing, you can kind of figure out where the plane might be based on the sound mm. um but it's a lot easier with certain search and rescue planes or military aircraft that are often equipped with technology that makes it easier you know <laughs> the next few days it was foggy overcast rainy cold and the days were short because this was coming up on fall i mean it was fall it was october it was basically the start of our winter yeah let's be real <laughs> This made uh, the search tougher, but no one gave up. An SR-71 spy plane was used in the search, and ground searches were conducted mostly along Portage Pass, where it was especially tough to get aircraft in. No single piece of evidence was ever found. The wreckage is still missing to this day. Some possible transmissions were heard by various planes and radio technicians, but none could ever be confirmed to be the plane And in the NTSB report, which we'll get into. None of them are really much more than mentioned, so I didn't think that much weight was put into them. 39 days after this disappearance, the search was called off and the men were declared dead on December 29th. The NTSB, which I mentioned just a second ago, <laughs> is the National Transportation Safety Board, and it is a, quote, independent federal agency charged by Congress with investigating every civil aviation accident in the United States and significant accidents in other modes of transportation, railroad, railroad, <laughs> highway, marine, and pipeline. For aviation accidents, the NTSB often delegates the actual investigation to the FAA or Federal Aviation Administration, but only the NTSB is cleared to make final determinations of the cause of the crash and any suggestion, suggestions based on it. 
this is not one of those cases. <laughs> um, because it was so high profile, the NTSB did the investigation themselves. They collected a lot of information on what the weather was like on the day, including several accounts, like firsthand accounts. And the consensus was that the weather was just bad. It was windy and turbulent, overcast with low visibility. And Doug Bransford, a Continental Airlines DC-10 captain who made it a couple white who made a couple white knuckle flights that day before grounding his plane for the rest of the day, said a few years later, quote, I could not imagine anyone trying to fly through that turbulence. His first flight of the day took off out of Anchorage about 10 minutes prior to the flight with the two congressmen, and he wasn't going along the same route, but was close by flying over Cook Inlet. The turbulence he experienced on that day was so bad, he talked about his knees going up to hit the bottom of the instrument panel, causing bleeding, which I've never heard of before. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I've been through some pretty shitty Alaskan turbulence because it's pretty fucking common because our winds here are insane. But I've never had the kind... I've never experienced the kind of turbulence where my, like, my feet leave the grounds. Yeah. My body moves without my control. Well, I'm... Okay. Other than, like, different... Yeah. (laughs) Like, I've... I have experienced turbulence that was so bad like for a second there i thought we were landing oh god yeah Yeah, where you're like and it's like you're like (laughs) but never the kind of turbulence where my feet have left the floor or like Like, the kind of turbulence where like you just kind of fall yeah through the air which is not fun yeah so i've heard (laughs) and pray to god to never experience Mm. so the Cessna 310C was described as capable and had just recently had a couple regular inspections done, one literally the day before they took off, so it was determined unlikely that there were any major issues with the plane that may have caused the crash. Mm. So I'm going to breeze through that because I don't think any of that is very important. <laughs> Let's take a second, though, to talk about Don Johns, the pilot. I said earlier that he was a pretty well-respected Bush pilot who had experience in icing conditions... What I left out was that he was often described as reckless and overconfident. A lot of pilots questioned his judgment in general and specifically on this day. He'd had incidents in the past where he'd had to make emergency landings because of faulty equipment he hadn't cleared with the FAA. And at one point, he even had his pilot's license temporarily revoked because of a forced landing on a highway in Florida. Jeez. Yeah, where he clipped a car. Oh. Anyway. Where are we? Shortly before the doomed flight, he had written and published an article titled Ice Without Fear, which gets mixed reactions, but I think there's a pretty clear split. (laughs) A lot of reporters who have read it say that it is well-written and talks about precautions you can take and how icing conditions aren't something you need to be terrified about. A lot of pilots who have read it say it shows a remarkable lack of respect for weather conditions and exemplifies how reckless he was with safety. In this particular case, I'm inclined to go with the pilots. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm, like, I'm sorry, but it's. <sighs> it really was like I read. Look, any 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 Alaskan can tell you you don't fuck with our weather. No. And any person who has to go out and work in certain types of weather knows this. You don't fuck with her unless mm-hmm. you want to die. But he just, 
my the the vibe i got was that he had okay so diving cave diving is dangerous every time that you go down and come back up is a victory so the more times you go down and you come back up when you're cave diving and you survive it you you get there have been cave divers who just get cocky because every time they come back up it's like i've done it this isn't as dangerous as people say that it is you know yeah. that wasn't that bad blah 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 and then that leads to them being reckless yeah. and overconfident overconfident making unnecessary taking unnecessary risks and i got the vibe that that was kind of don john's as well that he had just been lucky <laughs> through enough icing conditions mm -hmm. that he had stopped respecting them. yes that he had stopped thinking that they were dangerous well and it's like he could have been incredibly lucky to have only experienced very slight ones mm -hmm. and not understand those who had been through really bad ones yes but anyway where is my cursor okay it was also discovered that johns had lied when he told robert mahoney earlier that day that he had survival gear in an elt emergency locator transmission <laughs> aboard how would they have determined that if they still haven't found mm -hmm. the plane for huh we'll get into it mm -hmm. so it was required in alaska at the time to have an elt aboard though it wasn't mandated federally until after this crash <laughs> shocker when it also became mandated to have one built into the instrument panel much better yep in the case of this flight it would also have been acceptable to have a portable elt but john's was later found in another pan alaska plane in Fairbanks, along with all three tubs of survival equipment the company had. So the one that he should have brought was found in Fairbanks. <laughs> Making my opinions to myself yeah. for the moment. It is speculated that he could have somehow acquired another ELT as a witness saw something in his bag before the flight that could have been an ELT, not confirmed, could have been. But multiple witnesses stated they didn't see any survival equipment aboard, and the NTSB has concluded there just wasn't any. Mm. And as, again, somebody who has grown up around aviation and stuff, that kind of survival equipment, it's hard to miss if it's there. Yeah. Because it takes up a lot of room. Yes, it does. He, My dad keeps it in the plane 24-7, so I just, like... Is there an excuse to not have this stuff aboard? No. Absolutely not. No, anyway, there is also some controversy over whether Johns was flying VFR legally. Um, remember that there are a lot of laws about when visibility is good enough to fly VFR, but the big factor in this particular case is whether or not the, fly, the flight was being paid for. Johns said to a couple of his friends that he was going to fly this route for free for the congressman, and depending on whether or not that was true or not, he would have been required to follow different sets of rules, basically, whether this was a chartered flight or a personal flight. <laughs> if the flight was being paid for, basically, he was not flying VFR legally, but if it wasn't being paid for, he was fine. Still, the weather on the day was not the kind of weather most people want to be flying VFR in, 
but the particular plane Johns was operating in didn't have the equipment to fly IFR or instrument flight rules. So he had to fly VFR, mm-hmm. but the weather was not the NTSB. Conducive for that. Yeah. Yes, actually, that's the exact wording that the NTSB used. Was conducive? <laughs> yeah. Fuck yeah! <laughs> so, let's take a break from all these acronyms <laughs> and talk about Portage Pass. Looking at a map, um, Portage Pass is kind of behind Anchorage, and it's a good route south out of Anchorage when the clouds are low. The pass is a mile-wide, low-altitude valley, about six miles long, going from Turnigan Arm to Passage Canal, which is part of Prince William Sound. The lower parts of Portage Pass are about 400 feet above sea level, with the peaks on either side rising between 3,000 and 6,000 feet. In bad weather, Portage Pass is sometimes the only way to fly south out of Anchorage, so if Portage Pass is closed, that's often an indicator that this is not the right day for a flight. There was actually, there was a um, military helicopter who tried to fly through Portage Pass on the same day, and the weather was so bad, he turned around. Oh, wow. Or he, I mean, not turned around, he changed his flight wow. plan. Um... Portage Pass is heavily wooded with steep terrain, terrain and a glacier, so despite the NTSB saying that, quote, much of the Portage Pass area was also searched twice by ground personnel, unquote, they're also, they are also admitting to the fact that it's just not possible to search the whole pass. Some of it just is not searchable by ground, and given the amount of trees and snowfall in the next month or so, it would have been extremely difficult to search by air as well. The most widely believed theory is that the plane never made it out of Portage Pass. Some locals in Whittier, which is kind of like right at the end of Portage Pass, here I'll bring up that map, Whittier, and that's Portage Pass. Mm -hmm. Some locals in Whittier said that they heard a plane overhead at roughly the time the plane should have been flying over them, but it really cannot be conclusively stated that it was that flight. The NTSB ended up concluding in their January 31st, 1973 report that it is impossible to tell with with the current evidence the actual cause of the crash, but it was likely weather. They also said that if more evidence was found, if the wreck was found, um, they would look more into it. But given what they currently had, I mean, it was a pretty sparse report, (laughs) all things considered, because they just didn't have much. Mm. There were also several theories about bombs, and you can probably tell from my tone what how I feel about them. So a lot of conspiracy theories think Hale Boggs was targeted because of his role serving on the Warren Commission after John F. Kennedy's assassination. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> he, Boggs, I mean, he apparently had a bit of beef with J. Edgar Hoover, and some sources say he thought that Hoover had just lied and lied and lied to the Warren Commission basically every time he opened his mouth. So Wow, that's a statement. Yeah. <laughs> so like he there was there was somebody who listed all of the things that J. Edgar Hoover lied about, but it amounted to everything. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Be a shorter list if they said what he had told the truth about. Yes. So some of Boggs' friends said he regretted signing the Warren Commission. Like, there were rumors that that... Mm -hmm. I couldn't find any direct quotes from his friends, but there were rumors that privately he regretted signing the Warren Commission, but publicly he supported the commission's findings. Yeah. In the 1990... He did have beef with J. Edgar Hoover, though. (laughs) Yeah. That part I'm fairly certain. Yeah. 
in the 1990s, the FBI actually briefly did look into the possibility that a bomb brought down the flight, but not because of, you know, the Warren Commission and stuff. Mm -hmm. That conspiracy theory. (laughs) Jerry Max Paisley was a low-level mobster in Tucson, Arizona, who was serving a life sentence in the 90s when he told investigators about his supposed involvement in a plot to blow up the plane. He actually married Peggy Begich, Nick Nick Begich's widow, just over a year after his death. Hmm. The marriage didn't last long, though. I do think it's interesting that he married her in the first place. Not, I don't, like, I don't think Peggy is sketchy, but (laughs) I think he's sketchy. Yeah. Um, In 1994, Paisley basically told investigators he had been given a briefcase in Arizona in 1972 and told by a lieutenant of mobster Joe Bonomo Sr. to take it to Anchorage. He did so, handed it off to two men, and returned to Arizona, where he was told, quote, something big, end quote, was about to happen. Years later, when he moved to Alaska to live with Peggy, he said he and Peggy ended up owning a business with one of the men he handed the case off to, who one night got drunk and told Paisley that the bomb had been placed onto the flight that took down the congressman. It doesn't seem like a whole lot came out of the FBI investigation to this, and it is suggested in some articles that it was closed shortly afterwards. Mm. So. <clears throat> oh, God, sorry. <laughs> you get spooked. <laughs> yeah, well, all of a sudden there was a soft furry thing fucking touching me, and my hands were right here, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> can't do that, Rocket. You scared the fuck out of me. So, both congressmen actually did win their re-elections and were elected, but when they were declared dead, special elections were held to find replacements. <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. Lindy Boggs won her husband's seat, and Don Young, who had initially lost to Begich, won his first term and was subsequently re-elected for every term until his death this year. Yeah. That is the last bomb I wanted to drop on you. Yeah. For anyone in Alaska... Don Young is an infamous name. <laughs> Don Young. Obviously, this is a long time. Everybody fucking knows Don Young. Mm-hmm. Okay. He seemed like his family loved him, and that is what I will say about him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go into my opinions on this. I'm said not matter. glad that he died, but I'm glad that he's out of office. That is what I will say. I am fully, 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 fully in support of senators and U.S. Mm -hmm. representatives having having a term limit. And it's and a fucking age an age limit in terms of how old you are. Like, Mm -hmm. not not how old. Obviously, an age limit implies how old you are. Like, you cannot be a senator. Or representative past the age of retirement age. Okay. So yeah. 65. Yeah, I mean. And I think that's very yeah, much that's a grace period. And mind you, that's not a number that I'm like actually stating. I'm, I would just, yeah. that's the first number that I came up with. <laughs> I haven't put that much thought into it, but there should be. Mm-hmm. So we actually, in Alaska, we have, we are experiencing a special election because Don Young died. Yeah. So, and, um, Nick Begich the third. We are currently on the third season of Nick Begich, which is that's that's pretty much what I wrote in my notes. <laughs> that's I wrote down we're on Nick Begich the third, and then I was like, wait. <laughs> anyway, he is running 
he's running <laughs> in the special election. So we've kind of come full, full circle. Honestly, this sounds super bad. I totally forgot that Don Young had died because I've been so busy with other stuff. I know. I forgot to do the primary for the election until like two days before it was due. Anyway. Do you see who's currently in the lead, though? I didn't. Or for, um, sorry, for governor. Oh. So it's Sarah Palin and Santa Claus. Oh, yes. I did see that. Why are we... (sighs) I mean, Sarah Palin, are we serious? Are we going back down that road again? Are we again? doing this? I know. No, look, she did do a lot of things. But she also made us look like idiots. Yes. Which is my biggest issue. Are we... Her. Okay, anyway. Russell Brown was... Okay, Russell Brown was given a tombstone in Nebraska, which reads, Lost over Alaska. In Alaska, no missing aircraft case is ever closed until substantial evidence is found to point to the location of the crash. If you have any tips, uh, probably the best people to reach out to are those at the FAA Regional Operations Center at 907-271-5936. I'm not 100% sure they are like the end goal of the people you need to talk to, but they can at least get you to the right place. (laughs) And that's the best that my dad could tell me. <laughs> so, yeah. And he works for the FAA. So, <sighs> any comments? I just, I am definitely curious about the bomb thing. Mm-hmm. But the... as we bring it up, almost every episode now, all comes right. Yeah, the theory in the mobster out of Tucson, Uh he, in his recounting, Begich was the target, not Boggs, which I think is very interesting. Mm -hmm. But I I don't think I saw why. My only potential theory, like, again, I don't believe this is true, but if I was thinking about this in the conspiracy theorist's point of view, my potential theory would be oil companies didn't want him in office Mm -hmm. because it is widely accepted by the Alaska public that the only reason Don Young served so long was because of the oil companies campaigning for him. Absolutely. Yep. So that would be my only theory. Very wealthy. But Nick Begich also put aside land for the, or helped to put aside land for the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. So I don't know why the oil company wouldn't see Would him as an ally. Him. Yeah, you know what unless I mean? there was something going on, like be, like back talks that were happening where it's mm-hmm. like, this wasn't a good idea. I shouldn't have done this. Yes. Or maybe they wanted him to do something and he wasn't and that kind of thing. Yeah. Who knows? That's... But... I don't think... And I do want to say... As much as I did not agree with any of the shit that Don Young, a lot of the shit that Don Young did in office, especially the stupid shit that just, like, didn't have anything to do with, like, I can't get into him twisting other congressmen's arms or things like that. But anyway. Well, because, like, okay, to briefly put it in here, the reason that certain congressmen are so powerful is because of log rolling. Mm -hmm. The longer that you serve the more log rolling goes on and the more power that you have. Mm-hmm. If I remember off of the top of my head, he was the longest serving congressman 
ever. That wouldn't surprise me, yeah. He served for a fucking... Let's see here. Long ass time. I mean, okay. Hold on. We can do the math right now because it was 1972. No, 1973 to 2002. 2022, I mean. The... Let's see. But I will say, I'm worried that this sounds like I think Don Young had anything to do. No, no, absolutely I not. absolutely do not think he was competent enough to have <laughs> had a part in an assassination mm. plot. I also don't think it seems like it's something that he would do. No. I just don't think as a person he seems like he would do that. Like, but I think for many reasons it is not something he would have done, not yeah. something he would have been involved in. And I also don't think that it has been suggested by anybody, but I did want to just make sure nobody thinks I think that, because I don't. <laughs> right. I'm sorry, did you say the years, for sure? Um, 1972. Oh, sorry, I meant, like, did you say total years? So it's 49 years. Damn. But, surprisingly, the longest-serving representative to serve in the House with more than 59 years of service was Representative John Dingle Jr. of Michigan. That's a name. <laughs> that is a name. <laughs> John Jacob Dingle. <laughs> <laughs> oh my anyway, god. We can't do this. <laughs> Whoa. Give, give representatives term limits and let's do the outro. Representative what? William Charles Cole Claiborne. That's a fucking name. Of Tennessee elected to the 5th Congress. Oh, you know why? It's because this was 1797. He was 22. Mm-hmm. Wow, Jesus. Wow. The youngest woman to be elected is um, AOC of New York. Yeah. 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 <laughs> She's 29. Damn. Her election um, commercial is still probably the best I've ever seen. Anyway, I think people have seen it. It's it's very good. Anyway, let's do the outro. (laughs) This has been the baggage bog's disappearance, the disappearance of a flight including two U.S. congressmen in 1972 in Alaska. This is a Wild Mystery Podcast appears. I'm Ollie. And I'm Belle. You can go to our website at awmpa.com to get all of our social media and find our other episodes. We hope that you found this episode interesting, and we will talk to you next Thursday.